Welcome to the You Can Make It So podcast, episode number 27. We continue with our summer series on success, and it's great to have you with us, and we have been enjoying making our way through this series with some tremendous guests. And this episode that you're about to hear continues in that tradition. You're going to hear about progress, about change, redefinition, moving past comfort zones, accepting failure, and achieving goals. I look forward to sharing it with you. And I invite all of our full-service coaching clients to make sure to go to the Make It So platform and to get all of our material that goes along with this podcast episode. And if you want details on full-service coaching or anything that we do here at Phoenix Life Coaching Canada, go to our website, phoenixlifecoachingcanada.com. All right, let's get after it. Let's make it so. I'm very excited to be welcoming Norm Bacall. Norm uh, led one of Canada's uh, prestige law firms and was known as one of the most successful film finance lawyers in the country. He sat on the board of directors of a Hollywood studio and represented companies like Warner Brothers, MGM, Sony, and Lionsgate. But in 2014, that all changed and he began a redefinition. He has now published four books, his memoir, Breakdown, his guide for young professionals called Take Charge, as well as two prize-winning murder mysteries, Odell's Fall and Ophelia. He continues to lecture on the university circuit to consult with law firms and with professionals seeking career advice. He answers calls and emails from students and young professionals on how to manage their careers, and most recently completed his first TED Talk called Become the Person You Can't Imagine which I really encourage you to check out, and we'll make sure that the links are in our show notes. So, Norm, thank you for being with us on the You Can Make It So podcast. Oh, and thank you so much for having me, Frank. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's have a little fun as we, as we get started. We have a little tradition. We call it the Make It So questionnaire. We've been doing versions of it with all of our guests, so we'll get started. So just kind of, uh, you know, pick one or comment on, uh, on one of these. Uh, hockey or baseball? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I think I'm going with football. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> always, always my favorite since I was a kid. So. Right. Right. <laughs> now, are you a, a CFL guy or an NFL guy? Uh, I am one of the few CFL guys in the country, if you could believe it. I also follow the NFL, but uh, I grew up an Alouettes fan and I'm uh, hating the Argos. And, uh, and, you know, since I moved to Toronto in 89, I, I adopted the Argos as well. So. A, a little less pain than the, than following the Leafs. This is true. <laughs> Very true. Uh, Tim Hortons or Starbucks? Uh, no question, Starbucks. Just uh, Tim Tim Hortons coffee just doesn't do it for me. Netflix or Amazon Prime? Uh, another tough one. Uh, lately, it's been Netflix. Okay. Uh, but but I, I can flip either way on that one. It actually depends what they're what they're showing and how original the content is. It's true, and, and 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 sometimes Amazon does have some pretty original, uh, original yeah. Stuff. <laughs> That's true. Apples or oranges? Uh, I, I like to mix them, but uh, I'm I'm going with apples on this one. Definitely going with apples. <laughs> Same here. I, I like a good apple. Uh, window or aisle? Ah, uh, uh, unquestionably window. Yeah. I like the window seat, unless um, unless the flight is short, in which case I'll go with the aisle. <laughs> sandwich or salad 
uh, salad. Um, although I would say until about five years ago, it was unquestionably the club sandwich, okay. but, uh, but I've given up bread. So, <laughs> now, you know, earlier I had lunch and I had a grilled cheese sandwich. So now I'm feeling oh. guilty because, uh, uh, don't feel guilty. I just grilled cheese sandwiches are still one of my guilty pleasures. So, <laughs> so good. So they are so good. Now, have you ever asked anyone for an autograph? Uh, twice. So when I was, uh, probably more than that, but uh, I kept Jean Beliveau's autograph on my wall uh, from the time I was about 10 until I got married. And, uh, but the other one uh, that I'm quite proud of was uh, Weird Al Yankovic that I got for my son. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw him and met him at a restaurant in Beverly Hills and walked over and, and asked. Uh, I mean, there were when I was commuting back and forth to California in in my heyday, uh, I, I met a whole bunch of very interesting people. But I, you know, the rule was you don't ask them for autographs. <laughs> okay, that, I I didn't see that one coming at all. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Now, do you play any instruments? Uh, I used to play. Uh, guitar poorly and uh, piano even worse uh so now uh, and i there is still one song i can play on the piano <laughs> besides chopsticks <laughs> um now this might might be a, a little more challenging of uh, a question but favorite book ah um the orphan master's son it's uh, a book about north korea it won the pulitzer prize i read it about a year ago, and it is is so completely out of left field as a novel that I, I recommend it to anybody I talk to. Okay, awesome. I'm going to write that one down. And <laughs> favorite thriller movie? Ah, uh, that's a that's that is uh, truly tough. And when you first uh, when I first saw it, I I thought Indiana Jones, uh, but I have to say the traditionalist in me loves the old Hitchcock movies. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I, same thing. When it's and if anyone ever asks me about a thriller movie, my mind always goes to Hitchcock. <laughs> Favorite professional memory? Um, it was, and that's a tough one because because there were a whole bunch. Uh, but professional memory was. Um, a, it, it it isn't a single event, but a, a long period. Uh, at which I was uh, at war with a, with a business adversary. And uh, we were battling over a very significant client and it took me uh, almost two years to land it. And, uh, and that's when, and, and that enemy and I, you know, once we retired, we hung up our, our anger and uh, have become friends. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Most vivid personal memory. Uh, I've got two, uh, one unquestionably family related, uh, the birth of our first child, uh, as being something completely, uh, unique in time, not to say the births of my other children, just in case they have to listen in, uh, weren't, weren't equally magical, but this was becoming a father for the first time was, was a big one. And then, uh, my second was, um, a surprise birthday party that I had uh, uh, on the lot 
uh, at Warner Brothers in, uh, in, in California, where uh, all my friends in the finance department and some of my partners uh, flew down and surprised me with, a, with a, a huge birthday cake in the shape of a Buddha. So and we might get to that later. <laughs> and was that, um, was that one of those milestone birthdays or it, it was? It, it was, was my 40th. It was my 40th. Um, and uh, just one last one. Uh, what does the word success mean to you? Um, success uh, is an illusion. It's kind of like being rich. Uh, there's there's a, an old saying that I'm quite fond of that a, a rich man is a, a person, a rich person is, is one who has enough. And I think the same goes for success. It's uh, to set your definition of success by anyone's standard other than your own it is a complete illusion. And if you're happy with where you are, guess what? You're successful. That's well said. That's very, very well said. Um, so on, on that topic of, of success, um, you were a successful managing partner. Uh, you were the go-to person in the field of entertainment law. Um, you are in circles of high-level people at Warner Brothers, MGM, Sony, Lionsgate, and then it kind of all changed. Uh, what happened, and uh, what did you take from it all? Hmm. Oh, well, what happened, uh, if you want the long version, uh, you can pick up my book called Breakdown. <laughs> Actually, it, it, it's a how we built it and then how we broke it. Uh, but the, the short version is, uh, we built an incredibly iconic law firm, uh, and I didn't do it alone. I, there, I certainly had plenty of help, uh, but it was based on a vision um, and, a cent and some central core values. And we changed leadership uh, over the course of two years, 2012, 2013. And uh, as little as 12 months after uh, I resigned my leadership position, the firm completely collapsed. And uh, living, living through that final year was one of those daily nightmares. And any, anybody who's ever been through a business crash or anybody who's lived through severe illness or, or death in the family uh, knows what I'm talking about. It, it feels like you're, you're, heading, you're heading slowly towards a cliff uh, and you're continually in denial until you're in free fall. And when that free fall happens, uh, there's no net. And so uh, that's what happened when, when the business collapsed. I, I could probably spend, and I, I do spend hours at, at other firms retreats talking about it and talking about what, you know, how we got there and, and the issues of how uh, ultimately to, you know, because everybody wants to know how, you know, how could something like that happen? And the really the simplistic answer, although it's, I think it's fairly well on point, and that was for 25 years, um, uh, our day-to-day -day activities were completely aligned with our philosophy and vision and our values. So we, we said we were one thing and everything we did was consistent with that. And that's what made us a great organization and allowed us to recruit it, to recruit and build it uh, at first nationally, then internationally. Then in the final year, uh, uh, we, we lived through a bit of a financial crisis 
it impacted on legal services, new, le new leadership, uh, I, I won't say panicked, but tried to figure out how to react. And part of the reaction was to move away from those traditional values. So rather than weathering the storm by doing what we'd always done, they decided to weather the storm by trying a whole bunch of new things. And uh, that alienated a lot of people until the run on the bank was on, to oversimplify. Yeah, and, and that, um, that faithfulness to authenticity, like that faithfulness to who um, we are and uh, what we are about, whether it be personally or in a, in a professional sphere, is, is so, you know, so very, very vital. Um, when you look back on how that began to change, was there any moment that you yourself wished that you could have jumped in and just kind of, you know, pivoted the, the whole thing? Um, it's interesting. I'd say it, it took 12 months uh, and, and it was uh, 12 months pretty much on a, on a calendar basis. And I can remember in the first three months saying to myself, boy, I'm glad, I'm, I'm sure glad. Like I, every year I would look up to the sky and say, thank you, God, you got me through another year. The firm still exists. And when I, uh, after my retirement party, uh, and I was still a part, I became an ordinary partner I was, while I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I looked up and I remember, I remember the night I looked up to the ceiling in my bedroom and I said, thank you, God, you got me to the finish line. I know I didn't do this alone. And uh, within five months, uh, the firm was teetering and, and you could feel it that we, there, there was a major departure in one of our offices that was the bellwether that, that said, you have to, uh, you have to get back and involved somehow, but nobody, the, the problem was nobody wanted me. So we, at, we attempted uh, uh, over the course of the summer to uh, arrange for the leadership to try and get expanded so that we could, so I could get my hand back in. And it wasn't just me alone, alone but I think a number of partners believed that, that wasn't the right way to go. And, uh, you know, we, we, we appointed new leaders, let's stick with the new leaders, even though you know, in my view, we were headed to the edge of the cliff. And then finally, uh, and it was over literally just before the Christmas holidays, uh, where, uh, where the, our, our executive committee was finally convinced that we had to take drastic measures. And I was brought back in as, a, uh, uh, as the, the new interim leader without a title, but with all the authority. And... Uh, convinced in my own head that I could save it. Uh, and perhaps that's just a function of my own hubris. Uh, it's certainly in hindsight, uh, the critics would say, yeah, you know, you, you were too late and maybe, maybe you were one of the problems, Norm. And so I had to live with that as well. Uh, and, and all of that's, you know, all of that stirred in my head, uh, along with all the anger I was feeling when I discovered I, at the end of the day, I couldn't save it, but uh, did make for a great book. <laughs> and I can only laugh about that, you know, af after I spent, you know, my first uh, six months writing and, and I didn't, I, just, just so you know, I, I had no idea what I was going to do next in my career. Uh, it was my wife who handed me a, a blank, one of those blank notebooks and said, here, you, you, you need to process your, all, all of these feelings of, and your, of your loss and your hurt. And I started writing and I didn't stop writing for six months. And when I looked at the draft at the end of six months, I could see all the anger on the page, but it had left my heart and my brain. Yeah. You know, I, I've, um, 
I, I've, I've read the book and uh, it's excellent. I really encourage people to, to, to read it. Um, but as, as, you, as I'm reading it, um, you can almost uh, sense the, the relief coming off of you, uh, you know, as you write, you know, various accounts and as you describe various interactions, um, you can almost feel it coming off of you. And uh, so uh, I like the way that, that you described it. Now we're gonna we're gonna swing back to, to this moment. Sure. Uh, I, wanna, I wanna kind of go further back, and I wanna take you to when you were just starting out. Uh, so starting out as a lawyer, uh, arriving uh, at a at a law firm. Um, as you look back on those early days, what are some lessons or or takeaways that you learned from that? Well, certainly in the first four years, I'd say uh, I, I, was, I was obscure. I was like so many students who come out of professional schools or even who go into business, having a general sense of what they want to try. And some don't even have that. And then having to kind of fly by the seat of your pants. And, and, and as you're going, in hindsight, you discover that you've gotten little pieces of advice that actually helped steer you in the right direction, even though at the time it didn't seem like much. But when you look back on it, you say, oh, yeah, I, I actually did pay attention to this advice, and even though sometimes you don't even realize that you have. Okay. So th those, those little guideposts along the way. But I can tell you, uh, I was in my fourth year of practice, and I've written about this, and uh, my boss was giving my, me my review, and he said, Norm, you have a lot of talent. That's why you're still here, but there's something missing and I can't tell you what it is. And, and imagine you're the person sitting in that review and how you feel at that moment, other than, aside from being crushed, it's, you know, I, I, I got home and told, spoke to my wife about it. I said, how do I, how do I even deal with it? Like, they can't even tell me what's wrong. And, uh, but it took her, uh, it took her to point it out to me. And that was that uh, I wasn't taking enough initiative. And, uh, and, and once, once, once I got into my retirement from the legal field, I decided, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write a book about this uh, based on where I was and how uh, taking initiative, or as I put it, how take, taking charge changed me yeah. and changed my entire view. But again, when you're, when you're starting it, it's not like you say, oh my goodness, I'm a different person today. But you can sometimes look back and say, that was the turning point, point moment in my career. And yes, I, I do remember it, not, not as a specific day, but certainly uh, roughly a moment in time. That, that's so important. And uh, you, you do a, a masterful job really in, in, the, in the book, Take Charge, of you know, uh, inviting people in their life to look behind, to see the growth, but not to do it in a punitive sort of way but to do it in a way to, to seek, to, to continue to propel yourself forward. Uh, and so uh, again, just an excellent book. I, I encourage people. I've actually given the book out uh, to people. And oh, keep giving it, please. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will indeed. Now in your book, Breakdown, to, to go back to, to, to the first one, you highlight that in, um, in 2014, and you touched on this a little bit, you, you began a process of redefinition. Um, I, I found that use of, of term very interesting. 
Um, what does redefinition to you mean? And, and tell us about that process of kind of redefining the highs and the lows of it. Mm -hmm. Well, I've actually uh, borrowed, borrowed a, a more specific term from someone else and it's called rewirement. Okay. Uh, rather than retirement uh, when you're older. But I, I think we all go through processes, whether you're 25, 45, 65, where we have to, uh, whether you call it redefine, but it's a, a process of rewiring your head uh, to take yourself in a direction uh, where once again, you don't know where you're heading. And when you're 25 and just leaving university, you don't know anything. So everything, everything you, you choose to learn is new and it's exciting. And the more experienced you become, uh, for so many of us, the more fearful we become of trying new things because we know we're really good at this and we don't want to be seen as fakes uh, for, for the things we haven't learned yet. And we take that fear and we turn it into, I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm good at and I'm not gonna try anything else. So, but when you're faced with that life moment where you're at the fork and you have no choice or where, where you've come off Niagara Falls in the barrel and you, you find out you survived and you say, okay, what next? There's no, there's no getting back up there. I've got to just go on. And the question becomes really, I, I think you, you need to sit down and assess uh, in part what your talents are, what your interests are. And you have to go back to almost the way you, the way you were when you were innocent, knew nothing about anything and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try this. And I will continue down the path that actually gives me pleasure. Even, even though the pleasure is generally speaking mixed with a lot of frustration because you have to learn how to rewire your brain to, to take you down the next path. But you know, the, the, the key uh, to all of this, and I write about it and I speak about it a lot, is understanding that the only thing holding you back is your fear of failing in almost all situations. And if you understand that failure isn't the enemy, which is a hard thing because we're brought up from, you know, basically from grade one or grade two, like if you get that F, you're not bringing it home to your parents. And it's hammered into you until the day you graduate. You got to be got to be the A student. When in fact you look at the successes in the world, the Steve Jobs, and you know there, there are hundreds of examples uh, in terms of how how they when they when they talk about it, how their failures taught them so much and propelled you know their future successes. So I'm I'm fond of saying, having looked at all that and having lived it, that ultimately. Uh, failure is not the adversary, it's the teacher. And if you can accept that the failure is going to teach you something, you're going to learn uh, and, you know, continue on your path, maybe a little bit smarter, uh, maybe a little bit wiser and a little bit more experienced, uh, then, uh, you know, going back to my TED talk, you can eventually uh, become the person you can't imagine. Very good. Now, I know in, in your life, um, you desire to mentor others. If, uh, if anyone goes to your website, normbacall.com, uh, you say on that, on that website, do me the honor of helping you with your career and life decisions. Uh, so I know that, um, it, and I know individuals who, who have, uh, especially within the legal community, but others as well, 
who have been positively impacted by your collaboration. Why do you have such a passion for this? I was, I don't know, about 25 years old. And I was going to my first, I, I was a tax lawyer. But I knew from day one of tax law 101 that I was going to be a tax lawyer. Where that was going to lead me, I had no idea, but I knew it for a fact. And I'm in my second year of practice, head, get, flying from Montreal to Vancouver uh, to go to my first Canadian Tax Foundation conference. And there's a fellow standing um, at the airport in the, in the lounge after we checked in. And he is probably the, one of the most well-known international tax lawyers in the country. All right, now I know him as a, simply as an acquaintance. And he, he walks up to me at the airport and his wife is beside me. He says, Norm, uh, first he introduces me to his, uh, his traveling companion who happened to be his wife. Um, and he said, Norm, I have this tax problem. I was just wondering what you, what you think. He said, because I'm having trouble solving it. And he asked me the question. And all I'm thinking to myself is, Nat, are you kidding me? You can't possibly think. Like, I can barely understand the question, much less the answer. So, you know, after listening to it, he, he gave me what he thought the answer was. And I said, you know, that, that actually sounds as plausible as anything else. And I don't think really I can, I can add any more to your answer. And what I thought about that moment years later, I said, here's a guy who should have been tre treating me like a dweeb, like I was nobody. And he came up to me and he asks me for advice. And I said, you know what? For me, that was a life moment. He was showing me a respect I hadn't yet earned. And I said, if I ever have the opportunity to pay that forward, I will. So I have the time, I have the opportunity, the interesting thing was uh, I called Nat up, who's, who's now 90 years old. I called him a few months ago and I said, I just want to let you know uh, that the impact that moment had on my entire career, because ultimately when we became friendly, I, I did grow up in the tax community. I became fairly well known, like everybody knew who I was. Yeah. And, uh, but I said that moment, I just want you to know was a life moment for me. And of course he, 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 he didn't have, even have a clue what I was talking about. And I said, but, but part of that story is I wanted to be in a position where uh, 20 years from now, people will be saying, I remember a conversation I had with Norm that helped, helped me get to where I am today that I won't remember. Right. That's, that's very powerful. That really is. That's really, really powerful. Um, you know, in your um, in your redefinition of yourself, um, it's led you to become an author. Um, and I understand uh, why one of those why one of those writing exercises would be a memoir. I understand why one of them would be a professional handbook. Uh, but why other pieces of literary uh, examples uh, that you've written what why would fiction and a novel wh why would those come up? so i have to go back in time and and, and the story is going to wind a bit but we'll get to the end so i've known a few things for certain in my life and the first thing was uh 
I was never going to have any connection to Hollywood as a tax lawyer because like, how was that ever possibly imaginable? And then the second thing I knew for certain is I would never lead a law firm because I watched the managing partners before me and said they should have their head examined. In fact, my boss, the boss who I spoke about earlier, eventually he became, he was my predecessor as managing partner. And we'd have this joke every time he would get upset about something, I would say, Jean, you're doing a great job. And it was our standing joke because I didn't want him to ever retire. Uh, but he, you know, he, unfortunately he discovered he had uh, terminal cancer and that's when they tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you do it? And I, and my, you know, my, my inner self said, no bloody way I'm doing this. And my outer self said, let me think about it. And finally I said, you know what? I have no idea if I can do it. So I'm going to try. And that became a basically a 25 year experiment. Um, so the, the final thing I knew for certain was that I was never going to write a novel. I was reading, I was on vacation in my forties. It was my wife's special birthday. And I was reading the English patient by Michael Ondaatje. And I, I closed the book on the last page. And I said, now I know for sure I'm never doing it. Like this guy is so talented beyond belief. I could never do, I just, I won't even try. So, uh, so once again, you know, I, I owe mo most of my career success to my wife and the timely thing she, she said to me at, at the moments where I needed to say, say them. But when I was, when I had a, uh, was close to the end of the edit on breakdown, she, she looked at it and she said, uh, you know, you write pretty well. Said, Why don't you try your hand at fiction? So as usual, my stubborn self said, no, there's no way I'm doing that. I can't do it. I, and I told you, I'm never going to do it. She said, she said, go read some Shakespeare and maybe it'll give you some inspiration. So I took her advice, uh, even though I didn't really want to. And I read some Shakespeare and I walked in one day and I said, I've got it. I'm going to write Othello, the M&A lawyer. That's going to be my, my novel. And uh, did I know how to do it? No. Did I know how little I I knew about writing novels. Uh, I, I thought having written a book breakdown that, okay, at least I know how to write a book. How difficult can it be? And uh, when I, you know, on roughly draft 32 of, uh, of what became Odell's Fall, I, uh, I called my editor at, uh, from breakdown. I said, listen, uh, would you do me a favor? Just read the text. I, I'm not hiring you to edit this because I know you don't do fiction, but just tell me if I'm on the right track. And she called me up uh, three weeks later and said, Norm, as she said, this is a very credible piece of work for an amateur. She said, and if you want to be regarded, a well, known as a well-regarded amateur writer, this does it. She said, but, and, and then she started uh, the crucifixion like the nails going through my hands, the nails going through my feet, uh, while she basically told me what I'd written was a piece of crap. And uh, it was a good, she said, good story, but you don't, you don't know how to write fiction. So she said, she pointed me, she said, here are some things you need to read. Here's what you need to learn. Here are this, you know, here's a, there's a set of 10 skills. And she said, and you know, you'll master them by writing, but you need to know what people who know how to write no. So it was, it uh, became a, you know, four, a four year work in progress, taking that original manuscript and turning it into uh, a novel that looks like it's been written by an author.
it's uh, that's uh, it's such an important story um, that you just shared because um, number one, what we think we can't accomplish, so often we can. But number two, um, you you tried. It wasn't exactly you know stellar. Uh, oh, it was. All, let's not go that far. It was. It was all. And it's funny because I've kept the manuscript. It's on my bookshelf. But every so often, uh, I'm in the position where an amateur author will send me their manuscript, and uh, I'll I'll start reading it and I'll laugh. I said, "You're writing exactly the way I used to write." <laughs> but you didn't you didn't give up at that moment. No, you persevered, and and you took that advice that someone had given to you, and and you continued to press forward. And, and I think that's so crucial uh, to uh, you know to to the precursor of. of so it uh, sounds to me like you've been fairly busy in your period of redefinition. Uh, you have uh, been taking on a number of, of different projects, different type of projects. Uh, you've been going into areas that were comfort zones as well as areas that were brand new zones for you. Um, let's talk a little bit about balance. Um, so how do you let off some steam? How do, how do you relax? How do you keep like a a healthy approach uh, to this to the stresses of life and uh, and how do you handle stress uh lots of questions there so in terms of uh let's start with balance so from ba balance perspective again i owe i owe my philosophy on balance to my wife who said you know we because we had we we had four children and uh, and and she said uh somewhat jokingly uh uh, after the fourth one was born, Norm, every hour we spend with the kids now is an hour we won't be spending with them in therapy uh, when they're young adults and teenagers and blaming us for everything that's wrong with their lives. Uh, so we had, a, we had a house rule because she was also a working mother. And that was uh, dinner time every night was sacrosanct as a family. So unless I was traveling, I was home for dinner by 6.30. And that was always a negotiation you know, because she said six, I, I said 6.30, we'll put that aside for a moment. But we had dinner with the kids every night. So 6.30 to 8.30 belonged to the family every night. Uh, our social life on the weekend, what was our children? And if we were getting together with others, it was revolving around children. And that, that, that was our choice. And, um, but it kept, kept me balanced. And even when one of us was going through crazy work periods. Uh, the simple answer was we're home for dinner. We're eating as a family. We go back to work after we put the kids to bed and, you know, and, and we get by. And that was, uh, so, and of course today I'm reaping all those dividends because my children are, uh, very well adjusted. They're very close to each other. I've got, you know, I've been blessed with six grandchildren. We've also been blessed with, you know, that, that everyone is healthy because, now, that's the other thing you can't control. So family has been a great source of uh, the balance in my life. And, and, and it's, it's a constant reminder, uh, you know, that work has, you know, work in some respects is primary uh, and, and achievement and success, however you define it. Uh, but without, without relationships on the side, why are you doing it? So that's, that's where I start from. And then, you know, for 20 years, I, I, uh, I did karate until uh, 
until my knee disintegrated into nothing and I had to replace it. But uh, so that was a, that was one of those, I'd build it into my calendar. I would treat it as if it was a business appointment twice a week. And then sometimes it was three times a week. And uh, I went from completely uh, uncoordinated klutz to a third degree black belt, but the, that, that still took me 20 years to get there. But again, it's, it's kind of like writing the book. You, you just take it in. Um, and I was doing a podcast yesterday and just explaining it's, it's about breaking your goals into just tiny daily pieces of what am I going to work on today? This is, so the goal isn't, I'm going to write a great novel. The goal is what am I going to learn about writing today? Uh, who, what, what author am I going to read and say, Oh, like the light bulb has just gone on. I finally understand what they're doing, how they're manipulating me as a reader. I can do that now. And that's a skill I'll learn today and another skill I'll learn next week. And I'll put it in my writing and, and then somebody will read it and said, Norm, Norm, we still haven't figured this out yet, but you're getting, but I'll feel like I'm getting closer until I get there. So if you understand that those, those changes are what you can control um, and will make eventually make you better, but it takes me into the, the third point in terms of stress and uh you know, in, in some respects, I'm lucky because I'm, I'm wired uh, not to get naturally stressed. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't live with anxiety like everybody else. But uh, something, you know, the, the key lesson I've learned from some very wise people is uh, the only thing you can control is what's going on between your ears. And and what you can do yourself. And to the extent uh, the power is somewhere else, you have a choice. You can be, you can let your, feel your anxiety and let it control you. Or you can say, I'm going, I'm going to be guided by what I can do about this. And if I can't do anything about it, I'm not going to worry about it. And then, yeah, and force yourself to believe it. You know, when because it does creep back in and, and you say, oh my God, what if this happens? What if that happens? And, or, or what if, you know, why is this person so angry at me and so upset? And in those moments, I've always been able to, and it doesn't come easily because you have to always work at it to say, it's their problem. I don't need to make it my problem. Quote your TED talk, um, because I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, um, I think before, if I remember correctly, before it went public, you you had put in uh, through some social media, maybe some LinkedIn, some suggestions, you asked for suggestions, you know, how do you do a TED talk or what did you learn from your TED talk? And I remember like following some of those suggestions along, just kind of like reading what people were, were, uh, were putting down. I, I think that now knowing a bit more about you, that, that follows the pattern of you wanting to learn from others as well. But your TED talk, become the person you can't imagine. What, what made you undertake, first of all, such a project? And then just tell me about the experience and the outcome. Uh, what made me undertake take it? Uh, probably about seven years ago, I didn't even know what TED Talks were. And, uh, but my publisher said, uh, Norm, if you want to help sell Breakdown, you really need to do a TED Talk. And I said, to which I said, what's a TED Talk? And so she pointed me in the right direction. And I started listening to them. And I, I made some applications. Like there was one in Phoenix. There was one at UCLA. I said, oh, I'd love to talk there. Uh, and of course, uh, the, 
in, in my second career, I've, I've gotten much more used to rejection. Like as a lawyer, uh, you know, you'll have your clients, you're, you establish, you build from there. And you, and you never look at not getting a client as rejection. I always looked at it as maybe next year I'll be able to convince them. But as an author, it's, you know, most of your rejection is, involves being ignored completely. So I, so I sent in those applications. And of course, I never heard back because, you know, predicted from an American perspective, who, who the hell is Norm Bacall? And uh, so, okay, I, I figured that out. And then I was, and I put it aside uh, and forgot all about it. And then I don't even know how it happened, but across my feed, and it might have been on LinkedIn, that I saw uh, Ryerson is looking for, a, for speakers at a conference uh, that they're, they're holding as a TEDx conference. And, you know, and, there, there's, there's, a, there's a part of me that thinks you no, know, there's no such, there's no such thing as serendipity. But there it was. I said, as before I can talk myself out of it, I, I opened up the forms. I filled them all out. I came up with a thesis. Their, uh, their conference was on blueprints, and I came up with basically, I came up with a, with, uh, with a thesis that uh, if you think you can design your career by way of a blueprint, forget it. <laughs> like completely contrarian. And I, and I, and I sent the whole thing in and forgot about it. And, and we're like, Oh, we're only like two months away from the conference. And I get this email back from Ryerson and it's about five paragraphs long. And the first paragraph does not say congratulations. And all I'm thinking is, well, this is probably going to be the nicest rejection I've ever gotten. And it took them till the fourth paragraph to say, we're, we're thrilled to have you as a speaker. And then I said to myself, Oh my goodness. Like I didn't keep any of the material I sent them. I didn't even remember what I, what, what my thesis was. So I had to sort of humbly write them back and say, would you mind sending me back copies of my material? And, and uh, then I suddenly realized, okay, I don't really know. Like I want to do a Ted talk just cause I had planted the idea in my head and uh, but I don't know how to do it. And they let me know, oh, by the way, just so you know, don't expect there are going to be any monitors. Like you're going to have to memorize your entire text. And the one thing that like, I, I can speak for two hours at a conference, you know, with, with a single page of notes, but to speak for 18 minutes and to make sure you bring it in exactly at 18 and don't go over and make all the points you want, you've got to know your stuff cold. And I'm terrible at memorization. So but, but in, normally, instead of panicking these, in these situations, I just say, okay, let's break it down into little pieces. What do I have to learn how to do? First thing I'm going to do is uh, reach out on LinkedIn to anybody who knows anything about teaching about TED Talks. And I found a couple of experts who I, who I reached out to. And I wrote a manuscript and sent it to a producer friend of mine in Hollywood. I said, you know, just give me your script notes on this. And I sent it to one of those people who offered to some assistance. And she said, and as there's, there are two lines in that speech that are there because, uh, because of her. She said, you know, you're, the, way, the way you've written it is way too formal. If, if you're going to be talking like a 19-year-old, talk like a 19-year-old. And uh, so I, I learned how to give a TED Talk. And then every day on, uh, so I, I did the manuscript. It, it, people were happy with it. 
uh, I didn't I didn't have a title for it. So I went on LinkedIn. And I said, I'm thinking of three different titles. Here's a survey. Uh, everything came back. Nobody seemed to like any of them. So I went back to the drawing board. OK, here are two more. And the final one I came came up with is become the person you can't imagine. And that, you know, that that one in a in a voting landslide. So I knew, OK, that must be it. And then the speech over time, as I kept reworking it, uh, came to meet the title. Uh, but it was it was one of the most fun experiences. But I still can remember it. I'd practice, you know, three times a day. I'd break it up into little like two minute, two minute bite-sized pieces that I'd learn. I learned them out of order so that I knew I could flip into the speech at any point in time. I'd, and I'd recite the speech out loud while I was doing my dog walks twice a day. Uh, in the middle of the night, I'd wake up and I'd say, okay, three in the morning, I'd say, okay, you have three minutes to get from I failed, the words I failed to the end of the speech, go. And you can't go back to sleep until you've done it. <laughs> so eventually I, you know, I taught myself, it got to the point where I could do it cold. And I don't mean to go on for too long, but just to put it in perspective, I, I get there on the evening. It's, we're, in the, we're still deep, neck deep in COVID. So the audience is empty. I'm speaking to literally three, people, three of the organizers who I've set up as my audience and the rest of the conference is virtual. I do it. Uh, I've even put a new joke into the, into the center. The sparring scene in the in dead center was something I'd never rehearsed with anybody. I just decided I think it's better than anything I've come up with. And, uh, but there's nobody in the audience. Uh, so I don't know whether it's funny or not. I just hope it is. And then I finish. Uh, it's, it's late in the evening on a Sunday. I go outside. I do a Q&A with uh, the virtual audience. I come back in. And the organizer calls me over and she says, Norma, I just want to show you how this looks on the camera. And I come down and I look at it and it's off. She said, one of the camera angles is off. This, this looks amateurish. We can't send it to Ted looking like this. So I said, so what do we do? She said, oh, we have to re-record the whole thing. Oh, wow. All right. So, so I'm, I'm suffering from adrenaline crash. I'm starving because I haven't eaten for six hours. And my inner head says, I can't do this. But the words are coming out of my mouth before I can control them. And I say, sure, when do we do this? She said, oh, right now. <laughs> so I got back up there. I said, okay, well, I'm not, I am not doing this until you answer my question. I said, that joke I threw into the middle of the speech, was it funny because nobody's ever heard it before? She said, oh yeah, we were splitting our sides. Leave it, please. <laughs> <laughs> but I figured if not, I was going back to the old text. <laughs> See, I, that, that's an interesting, you know, ba backstage piece of trivia, because one would not have really known that. I mean, that you had, this is now your, your kind of your, your second kick at it. Plus you are, you know, maybe not at the, the same state of prime that you were, uh, you know, in the first, uh, when you're, you know, pumped and, and filled with it. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really good. Well, it's okay because about uh, nine minutes in or so, uh, it's late Sunday night, uh, the auditorium is armed. Yeah. And they've had somebody stationed at the door all night to make sure nobody comes in while I'm speaking or while any of the speakers are speaking. And I can see the look of panic on the face of the organizer. I don't, I don't know how I caught it out of the corner of my eye. And I just know somebody is about to open that door. 
and the alarm is going to go off and what do I do? So sure enough, I hear the buzz and and I'm completely thrown off. I just stopped talking. And until about, uh, but I see her motioning me on to, to restart. Uh, and just as the door is about to start closing, like uh, yeah, part, part of what's going on in my head is like, uh, where am I? Like, uh, and, and in, in the, uh, when you look at it, if you look at it really carefully, you'll, you'll see there's a moment that I pause and it looks like it's a design pause, but no, I, I, I'm just trying to refine my way. And, and all I'm thinking to myself in the back of my head as I'm continuing is I'm going to have to do a third take. <laughs> and, but she said, so I, so I finished the speech and I said, okay, so when do we start again? She said, no, she said, you stopped. It was genius. Uh, and I'm saying, what are you talking about? She said, well, if you'd kept talking while the, the alarm was going off, uh, we wouldn't be able to edit it out, but because you talk, because you stopped, we can edit out that entire piece other than I think there's one second if you listen really carefully you hear it uh but that's so so talk about uh strange experiences and surviving them well as I mentioned at the outset we're going to put the the link to that and to all of your um uh, all of your books in a, in our show show notes uh but the the, uh, the TED talk is certainly worth uh, listening to for, for sure now we're, we're kind of running up against the clock. So just one, one last question. Um, many who listen to, to this podcast, they're entrepreneurs, they're executives, they're, they're people who want to strive and thrive in their life. And we've touched on this a little bit, uh, but can you talk about the value and role of family in meeting our goals and getting to a point where we feel that we're a success? I, I think, uh, because not everybody has family and everybody's family is a little bit different and some families frankly are dysfunctional uh so but i'd say it it's really helpful to have somebody in your life you can talk to and and just bounce your craziest ideas off where you don't have to feel embarrassed and sometimes you know sometimes it's it's it's, sometimes it's just in my case it's always been my wife uh, my wife sharon uh but you know, some things I get from some of my closest friends and where you just, where you just need to talk. And some, some of them were my close business colleagues over the year, years where, uh, and in fact, my co-managing partner at Heenan Blakey, we were fond of closing the doors, getting on the phone. We'd speak to each other every single day. And he, and my, my favorite line of his was Norm, what kind of stupid idea is that? <laughs> And, and I owe a lot of my success to being able to bounce the craziest ideas off people and listen to their reactions and adjust. And, you know, and it's at the core of my TED talk is you can't do it alone. Anybody that they think anybody that thinks they can, I think is destined to be a very lonely person. So like reach out to others. It's not something to be embarrassed about uh, because you will get some of your best ideas uh, and you will be driven uh, more by uh, whether it's other people's expectations in terms of what they think you can do when you don't think you can do it or little tiny tidbits of advice that come out of conversations that you don't even realize you've picked up. Absolutely. Well, 
thank you for your desire to invest in others. Uh, you know, we, we, we all go through moments uh, and times in our lives of, of, of needing greater clarity, of needing refocus, of, of needing redefinition. I wanna thank you for sharing your experience of it and helping us to understand as one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis uh, you know, was fond of saying, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And, uh, and I think that um, as I read your books and I listened to uh, your TED talk, that was something that was always echoing in the back of my mind, was those words from, from C.S. Lewis. So thank you for being with us and thank you for your commitment to invest in others and for uh, sharing with, with us today uh, that power of being able to redefine. Thank you. Well, it's really been my honor to be here with you today, Frank. Thanks. Thank you. So tune in uh, next week on Tune In Tuesday as we continue our summer podcast series and let others know about our podcast. And don't forget to check out our blog on our website, phoenixlifecoachingcanada.com. There's lots of great tools and resources there. I also encourage you to follow us on Instagram and on Twitter, where we post daily, and also to connect with us on, on LinkedIn. And of course, for all of our full service coaching clients, don't forget to go to your Make It So platform to see uh, the full uh, form of this podcast interview uh, and also uh, to pick up the resources that are a part of being a full service coaching client. And if you want details on that, just go to our website, Phoenix Life Coaching Canada. All right, until our next episode and we get together again next week, start living in a way today that will help you to thrive tomorrow. Remember that you can make it so.